Hello, and welcome to the Lisa Congdon Sessions, a podcast for creative folks about living and working with more intention, curiosity, and joy. I'm your host, Lisa Congdon. Hi, everyone, and welcome to, oh gosh, I think this is episode, I should know this, gosh, 16, 17, something like that. Anyway, my apologies. It's the week before Christmas 2021, and I am back with my wife, Clay Walsh, for Ask Me Anything episode number two. So episode number two of Ask Me Anything. We did Mm -hmm. The first episode a couple months ago, and y'all had so many questions that we're going back for a second run. So let's get this party started. And before we do, you can probably hear some noise in the background. That's Milkshake shaking her (laughs) monkey toy. The dogs are being funny. We got a little dusting of snow last night, so we're getting into the holiday spirit here in Portland, Oregon. And they do not like to be cold or wet, so yeah, they're getting their play out here right here behind us yeah and also we cleaned up some pee-pee on the carpet last night yep and some poo-poo on the dining room floor today this morning because they don't when they go outside and it's cold they're like no and so they don't do all their business yeah Yeah. it's been quite a day yeah anyway so all the squeaking and maybe even barking and crying you hear in the background is probably just milkshake okay so clay so you get to choose. We're going to try to get through all of the questions that you guys posed on my Instagram feed, I yeah. don't know, a couple months ago. So Yeah, so many this. questions. This is a good one. When does procrastination rise up for you? When you have a project close to your heart or when the project is further from your heart? Oh, interesting. Oh, gosh. That's, a, that's an interesting question. So I'm not much of a procrastinator. Yeah, um, I was going to say, I don't think Clay, procrastinate Clay can too much. Um, vouch for that. It does happen, and I'll address that in a second. And I think that part of that is because I'm a Capricorn, and I have big Capricorn energy around being prepared, doing things on time, turning things in on time, all of that good stuff. So, you know, whether it's astrology or, I don't know, just my nature, that's sort of like how I roll. So so I guess the question is, well, well if it I does know. happen, if it's... Yeah, is it, like, when does it happen? And... For me, it typically happens when there's fear involved. Fear, it's so fear of like not being able to do something right. And so it's not always like that it's out of my skill set. Sometimes I have like a client who gives me art direction and the art direction is like confusing or not something I would normally draw. And so I'm procrastinating because I'm afraid that if I sit down and try, it's not going to you know, come out the way I want. So to answer your question, I think it's usually when something is sort of further from my heart. However, oftentimes I do procrastinate. And then I finally, of course, have to force myself to do the thing. And I realize like, oh, it was never as scary or as hard as I thought it was going to be. And that's a good reminder for me when I am scared to remember all of the other times that I was procrastinating because something seemed like it was going to be really hard and then ended up, ended up not being hard or ended up being really fun. So, yeah. Well, I have another question that's very much on the same lines. So how many hours a day or a week do you spend on quote work versus time for yourself? Is there a separation between work and other areas of your life or does it all blend together? Oh, (laughs) I would say like 90% of the time work. Well, this is kind of 
an interesting question. I love to break things down in percentages, as you know, (laughs) a good pie chart. But so for the most part, I have very clear boundaries around work and life. Clay, wouldn't you say? Definitely. Much more in the past five years. Yeah. So that wasn't always the case. (laughs) Like I would bring my computer to bed with me and stuff. Oh boy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I would like leave it by my bedside and like not even get out of bed. And then I would start... You know, working it. Yeah. And like Clay vowed to me when we got married, one of her vows, we each wrote our own vows. And one of her vows was that she was going to bring me coffee in bed for the rest of my life. And that's because like when we were first together, like I might get up to go to the bathroom first thing in the morning. But like typically I would get back in bed, pull my computer onto my lap and then like start working at like 630 or 7 a.m. And she would bring me coffee But that's, as we know, like not the healthiest way to work or live. So I stopped doing that. She still makes coffee for me and pours it into my cup, at least when she's in town. Anyway, (laughs) back to the question. Yeah, so I have pretty, I think I have pretty good boundaries. The only ways that those are blurred is like when I draw personal work, either in my sketchbook or on my iPad in front of the television, like when we are like watching a movie or watching something on Netflix. And that's partly because drawing is so fun for me. And most of the time when I draw in front of the TV, I'm not actually working on client work. Like I really do save that for work and work hours and like studio time. Milkshake's going to town back there. Well, Um, I guess the question also too is about your work hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, So I work from like nine o'clock, sometimes nine 30 on days that I ride my bike in the morning until five. Like I always end at five. Sometimes I work till like five 20 and I'm not home till five 30. Cause I pretty much go to my studio every day unless I'm doing a podcast recording or something because it's just quieter in my house. But anyway, there are some blurred areas like where after 5 PM in the evenings, I'll draw something just for fun or I'll have some idea that I want to execute. And it's always personal work for the most part. Another way that my life is like crossing is like, I'm getting a ton of work right now for bike related things. And if you follow me, you know that I am an avid cyclist. I love cycling in particular gravel cycling. And lately I've been getting, like, I think word is getting out that Lisa loves bikes. And so a lot of bike companies or bike related brands um, brands or nonprofits are reaching out to me to work together. And that is so exciting for me. (laughs) I just can't even tell you. So in those couple of ways it's blurred, but for the most part, I, I feel like it's really important to have time away from work that's separate. And for me, I spend most of it on my bike with Clay and our dogs, with my friends. I have like an amazing, amazing group of friends here in Portland, most of whom are not artists. They're just like, you know, people who do all kinds of other things outside of us hanging out. So (laughs) anyway, I do have a few close friends who are artists, but most of my friends are just working tech and all that kind of stuff. Regular folk. Regular folks. I don't want to say regular folks (laughs) because it makes it sound like artists are not regular folks and we really are. Good point. Yeah. You are regular folks. Next question. We have a wide variety of friends. Yes, we do. Very diverse. Let's see. This person is asking, does it get easier to, quote, not care what others think about the things that I make, say, or do? Uh I'm trying to overcome some negative messages from my youth, and it's just so hard. Do you think it gets easier? I'm trying to do the same for myself. Yes. I mean, first of all, I say that 
you shouldn't care what other people think. And I think that this person wrote that in quotes because she probably understands this too, what I'm about to say, which is like, of course I care what other people think. Like, I, I think I would be, you know, like a psychopath if I didn't. A um, robot. <laughs> a robot, yeah. Like, I really care what people think. I think what we want to move away from is letting what other people think of us, especially when it's something that legit is, oh, there she goes. Did you lose your toy? Oh boy, here we go again. Clay, do you want to go get her toy while I finish yes. answering this question? So I think what we need to work on is not letting what other people think, especially when it's like unsolicited advice or really at odds with like who we are, like ruin our day or impact our self-esteem. Like you obviously want to care what other people think, and especially when people are giving you feedback about stuff that really matters, right? It's important actually to care what other people think. But when, especially like when you're an artist and you're making kind of like creative work or you're putting yourself out there on social media, you do get a lot of either unsolicited advice or rejection, or sometimes like feedback comes in the form of silence. Like nobody likes what you do and nobody comments or engages. And that can be really hard to take in. And I do think with age, I have, and I'm going to be 54 next month, I do think that I have come to a place where I understand that I am not going to make everyone happy, that not everyone is going to agree with my point of view, not everyone's going to like my art, but it's still really important for me to show up. And I've really come to peace with that, and I think a lot of that is because I'm older and I have experienced so many things in the last 54 years, which have repeatedly over and over and over and over taught me that, you know, as a people pleaser, I'm never going to please everyone. And that even in those situations where people give me valid feedback, say that I hurt their feelings or that I said something that was offensive, I try really hard not to use that information to beat myself up, but rather to use it as an opportunity to grow and learn and become a better person. So I don't know, Clay, have you seen a difference in me over the last few years in terms of like not taking things personally or moving away from caring too much about what other people think? I mean, it's been pretty drastic in the past couple of years. The conversations that we have around different things that have happened or affected you are just few and far between now. So it doesn't seem to really be a big focus for you. I don't think that you think about it very much. Yeah. And I think I I used to a lot. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, which is normal. Yeah, it's totally normal. Um, It's just part of like the growing pains of like putting yourself out there. Yeah. Well, we've got great question, which could potentially be for both of us. Okay. From uh, Lori Hattin. Hello, Lori. I know you. Um, (laughs) We follow each other online. If you ever left the USA permanently, where could you see yourself landing? That's, That's an interesting question. I... I've done a lot of traveling in the last decade and some places that I, that I love and could see myself are in no particular order, Lisbon, Portugal, absolutely loved it there. So beautiful, such an open, open-minded community. Yeah. We were chatting we, we, about it quite a bit. Yeah. It's, <laughs> apparently it's a fairly easy place for expats to go. Love, love, love Stockholm, Sweden, very mm-hmm. expensive, but absolutely love it there. We actually have close friends who, who live, one of whom is American, but married to a Swede who live there. We've even talked about like going and living there for six months. 
paperwork even for short-term stays is a little a little challenging. So I don't know if that's ever going to happen. Love it there. We both love Paris. Mm-hmm. Neither of us speak French, so that's problem because. Like, I feel like in Sweden, everyone speaks English, at least our generation and younger. And then in Portugal, same. France, not so much, or at least they don't let you know that they speak English. And that would be, I think, challenging for us. Uh, We'd really have to learn to speak some French. I took a lot of French in high school and a bit in college. And I worked really hard to brush up before we went in 2013. And it was still a struggle. I studied for a few months beforehand. And it's still, I was so intimidated. It's just really hard to do in practice. Yeah. So it would take a lot of work on my end, but I'd be up for it. Yeah. But I don't see us moving there permanently, but wow, I would really, yeah. that's my I favorite mean, city in the world. Right, it's just like places that we love. Yeah. Well, I, we also sort of bopped around the idea of Amsterdam. We really yes. Oh yeah, we love Amsterdam. Absolutely love yeah. Amsterdam. So I guess yeah. the answer would be, if we were to land anywhere, it would be Europe. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. We are going to Mexico City in a few months for vacation, so we'll report back. That might be a place we end up. <laughs> I know, it's a little closer, too. All right, Lisa, another question here. Do you have any bold career dreams, ambitions that you secretly would love to do but are insecure of doing? You know, I don't I don't think so. I don't either. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. I am so happy with how my business is going right now. Like, you know how I say you will never arrive right at that place where everything is kind of magical. And Mm -hmm. I, and I understand, I think for the most part, that's true. It's like, you never arrive at a place where everything's perfect. But if I have arrived, it's now because I have this really like thriving art business. I have two full-time employees who are freaking amazing who I'm able to pay really well and will continue to do that. I have two freelancers who I love and who are incredible, one of whom is a strategist. So my employees are head of operations and head of retail and product development. And that leaves me so much more time to be creative, which is basically in the last six months what I've been able to spend way more time doing. Yes, I'm busy and I work on a lot of client projects and I have shows, but that's basically all I do now. I, I... you know, I have people who run my shops and schedule for me and answer emails and it's cool. So, so there's that, so, so there's like this kind of like having this business where I've got this team and we are really a team and I absolutely love them. What else am I doing? I also teach. I'm an adjunct professor. I'm on faculty at Pacific Northwest College of Art and the Applied Craft and Design Program. I teach creative entrepreneurship there. Absolutely, absolutely love teaching you know, this is my first year this past year. And I thought for sure, like it was going to be kind of hard and I was going to dread it. And I was going to question why I did it. And like, cause you know, I'm already busy. I don't need another job, <laughs> <laughs> but I freaking love it. I loved my students this year. I actually even wrote a uh, Instagram post about them recently. Cause it was our last day of class and I've had them for a whole year and I just, it's a grad program. So they're all like in their 20s and early 30s, and they're just phenomenal human beings. And I get a whole new cohort in January, which I'm super excited about. Love teaching. I w- work with this amazing creative agency called CoLoop. My agent, Ryan, is like the best. And I get to work on all of these amazing brand collaborations. And this year I worked on 
some really high profile stuff that was just super gratifying and exciting. I also work with amazing, kind hearted, you know, warm human beings as clients. I'm so lucky. And like I said, I'm doing more and more work that's like bicycle related, which is super fun. So I don't know, I'm just really happy. And I don't, I don't necessarily aspire to do, I mean, yeah, I have dream clients. Like, would I love to do the cover of a New Yorker magazine? Absolutely. Or like, whatever. But, you know, maybe that'll happen someday. For the most part, I'm like doing all the things I want to do. This year, I'm going to take more time again, like I did in 2020 to like, make some more, make more of my own personal work. I work with an amazing coach named Nina, who has really helped me change the way I run my business in a really positive way. And anyway, I'm just, I'm starting a foundation with Emily McDowell this year called the Long Table Foundation. We'll do an episode specifically about that. But anyway, it's just like, I don't know. I have like, I'm so happy. And so part of me is like, I don't necessarily aspire to do any more than this. And I guarantee you, two years ago when it came into my head that I wanted to start a foundation, I remember I was like walking Wilfredo, our dog, this was before we had milkshake. And it was like, or maybe I we had just gotten her because it was right around the time of the George Floyd murder. And I was like, I need to, you know, the whole country was like, just sort of feeling broken. And like, what can we do? And I started thinking about what I wanted to do in my own community. And it felt like such an aspiration to, to start something. And yet here I am a year and a half later, two years later, making it happen. And so sometimes this ideas come into my head and I feel like anybody like, oh, that's too big of a goal for me, or I could never do that. And yet once something gets in my head and I really want to do it, I, I usually figure out a way to make it happen. And so I didn't, again, I think that's kind of part of my like Capricorn nature. I'm pretty, I wouldn't say fearless. I feel fear just like anybody else. I just have this really amazing ability to push through the fear and do things that are scary or make me feel insecure. So, and that's the word that was asked here. What, what are you secretly insecure about? (laughs) Um, like anybody making mistakes and getting called out publicly for them. You know, we, we live in a cancel culture right now. I don't even know if that I'm secretly afraid of this. I mean, (laughs) the secret's out. Like I think a lot of online quote influencers, I don't show up online to be an influencer. I show up online to share my work and I have a big following. So as a result, I, I do influence people and I am kind of, I think not so secretly afraid of saying something that's insensitive or tone deaf or, you know, and then getting called out for it publicly and then not being able to you know, fix it or make it right. And I mean, I I do actually want people to give me feedback and tell me when I've said things that are offensive. So I'm not, I'm not at all suggesting that, that people don't do that. I think I'm terrified of it going all kinds of wrong because I've seen that happen to people Mm -hmm. over the last year and a half. And in some cases, those people did things that were really harmful. And in some cases, I think like people legitimately tried to make amends and apologize. And yet, were really hurt by how things played out for them. And I have mixed feelings about that because I do feel like if you show up on the internet, you got to be prepared for, mm-hmm. you know, for 
disappointing people, angering people. And I have, believe me, you know, I'm, I don't hide my politics and I get into arguments even with people who think I'm not progressive enough or, you know, whatever. But again, you can't please everyone, but I also don't want to hurt people. I don't want to cause harm. And I think that's my greatest fear is like ignorantly causing harm, which is why I involve myself in a lot of anti-racist work and learning about how to be anti-racist and how to like show up as, you know, not just an ally as a white person to black folks or folks of color or, you know, even my fellow LGBTQ community, but beyond that, like how to be an advocate and how to be a change maker. And, and that's something that I'm continually working on. On the same path, um, does social media overwhelm you? Sometimes. I mean, probactly in the same amount of time that I've started to not care what people think, going back Mm -hmm, to that earlier conversation, I have also stepped away from having social media be central to my business. And part of that is because Instagram, the algorithm has changed. So I just don't get as much engagement or likes or whatever. I mean, occasionally a post I make goes viral, but like not as much as it used to. And that's because I don't use video and reels yet very much. I mean, who knows what will happen in the future. And I think that, like, I realized because I was so public-facing and people were paying so much attention to what I was saying and, you know, arguing with me about things on the, you know, that I had said or, like, even benign things sometimes people will take issue with or how I pose questions. I mean, literally everything that comes out of my mouth sometimes, you know, gets dissected by one or two people. And so part of what I've had to do is create this sort of like, I don't want to call it a wall because I feel very connected to my followers, even to people who disagree with me sometimes. And I feel a lot of warmth over Instagram, but I've had to sort of put up boundaries, I guess is the better word around like how often I post, how much I respond to, you know, any sense of responsibility I have to people out in the world. And that has in turn helped me kind of like in the process I've been going through to like not care as much what people think or to not take things so personally. So I used to be much more overwhelmed by oh, I should be doing this on the internet and I should be posting more often. And I, oh, I'm comparing myself to this person because they post similar things and they're getting way more engagement than I am. Like all that stuff, I literally do not care about anymore. Like I could go for four or five days without posting anything and I don't think anything of it. I don't even read all my comments most of the time. And sometimes people say mean things and I don't even notice them or I delete them because they're rude, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I've had to like kind of figure out my relationship to Instagram and really kind of like do a lot of boundary setting and like self-care around like how much am I consuming and how much am I putting out there and like where's my sweet spot and I feel like I've found it and in a way it's been sort of a gift for me that Instagram has been less and less friendly to like visual artists who make still images because it's made me kind of be like, okay, I guess this is not as important to my business. I already, Now, that said, I already have a lot of followers, so Instagram still drives a lot of sales to my shop and all of that good stuff. I mean, I'm, I, I sh- I'm, st- I'm still using it, but I don't obsess over using it in a particular way anymore. I just really like, I think I've shared this before, but I made this Venn diagram that like shows all of the ways that I, you know, kind of make decisions about how I show up on social media. And I think one of them is paying attention, what resonates with people, like posting stuff that inspires me, 
genuinely. And then, oh, like also making sure that my values are and, you know, what's important to me is reflected in what I post, that I'm not just posting fluffy stuff, that I'm posting stuff that actually is like has meat to it. And most of the time, whether it's conscious or not, like everything I post goes through those filters and has to fall in the intersection of one of those parts of the Venn diagram. And that's really been helpful for me to like, be like, okay, what do I want to post? Even if I don't think anyone's going to like it, or even if I don't think it's going to get a whole lot of engagement, it feels true to me. And that's what's important. And then I let the rest be up to the universe or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Look, on a couple other notes, Social media beyond Instagram, does it overwhelm you? For instance, I know you don't participate in Facebook very much or LinkedIn or other channels Uh, like those. How do those overwhelm you? Or maybe they cause you joy like TikTok on occasion. I mean, I don't (laughs) post on TikTok, but I do like watching TikTok. And Clay can tell you, I go down TikTok rabbit holes. I hear her laughing so hard upstairs. I'm like, oh boy, what are you watching? (laughs) Yeah, it's bad. And then my screen time goes up. So, but then, you know, LinkedIn, I like have a LinkedIn profile and I definitely have gotten a couple jobs through LinkedIn. I was really LinkedIn avoidant for a long time because I was like, I am an artist, not a business, you know, and like now I've completely changed how I think about it. And um, I'm a fan of LinkedIn. I know. It's my favorite. Well, <laughs> but yeah, but you work in tech, but I, I don't go on there and post and like something really exciting will happen for me and Clay's like, you should go make a post and talk about this on LinkedIn and then I never do. <laughs> so obviously I'm not overwhelmed by, by LinkedIn or maybe I am and I, that's what I just avoid it, but I'm not really anywhere else right now that could change. So I don't, I don't use my Facebook fan page anymore. That's been a couple of years. I don't actually go on my personal Facebook, except now I'm part of this like cycling training group that only uses Facebook as like the, the main way of communicating. Mm-hmm. And so I have to be on Facebook, which has made me go to my personal page and like, you know, say hi to my relatives in New York. So anyway, (laughs) Um, this is a big question. So be ready. How did you get started in illustration? Oh gosh. Okay. So this story is all over the freaking internet and also basically in the first episode of this podcast. So, well, actually how I became an artist is part of the episode number one. So let me say a little bit. So go back. So so if you're interested in my story, go back and listen to the first episode of this podcast. It's basically my story. So I'm going to skip over that part because I, I tell it much better yeah. on that episode. And so then once I became an artist or like started making art, I... <laughs> I became, I started making friends on the internet. Like I was on Flickr and Twitter and I like started meeting other people. And I met this woman named Lorena Simonovich. And she at the time had a company called Petit Collage. And she made like these really cute modern kids collages. And she was also at the time a designer and she worked for Gallison Stationery. And her husband... I think he found me on Flickr or something. This was before Instagram, I think before Facebook even. And he found me and he was like, hey, this woman lives in San Francisco. You should be friends because it seems like you have the same taste and like whatever. (laughs) And so she emailed me and she's from Argentina originally, had just moved to San Francisco from New York. And now she lives in England. She's, She's been around, but she emailed me and was like, my husband thinks we should be friends. And I was like, okay. And her stuff looked cool. So I hung out with her and like, she's amazing. I couldn't understand half of what she said that day because her accent is pretty, at the time it was definitely like her English was not 
as clear as it is now. But anyways, <laughs> we had so much fun. She's we kind the of, best. She's the best. We kind of fell in love with each other and like became super tight. And she was already a working illustrator. She, you know, she worked for clients. She also did illustration and design for Gallison and like had her own kind of side business. And she was an amazing mentor for me. And one of the things that she told me was like, you definitely have the potential to become an illustrator. Here's what you need to do. You need to make a a website and you need to find an agent. I don't think that she would say that anymore because now people can kind of promote themselves because of social media. But at the time, Instagram didn't exist. There was social media was like not what it is today. And you really needed a website and an agent in order to get work. You made your own website. I did. Um, No, 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 no. I hired somebody I knew or a friend of a friend to make this very first one. It was super clunky. But, you know, of course, we didn't even have the tools for making websites in the way that we do now. And I eventually made my own website. But, yeah, it started with this other website that I had. And then I like made this portfolio and it was total crap, but like, and then I did that. And then she told me some people that I should email some who could potentially be my agent. And I happened to reach out to Lila Rogers, who this was back in 2006. No, 2008. 2008. Yeah. And I was like, I'm super interested in working with you. And, you know, Lila holds like global talent searches now, like people like take all of her classes on like illustration and licensing and she's a big deal. But at the time, like she had a roster of like, I don't know, maybe 30 artists and she like took me on. And I I barely, like I had one job with Chronicle books and that was a total fluke. And she saw something in me. Like she was like, okay, this girl doesn't have much work in her portfolio. And, but she, she saw potential in me. And in fact, the first year we worked together, I barely got any jobs, even through her. It was like, you know, I was still figuring out who I was as an artist. Yeah. I was still finding my voice. My work was nowhere what it is she now. Was so good to you. Yeah, she was great. She really mentored me and really helped me understand like how to become an illustrator. And years later, we ended up parting ways because you know I had sort of developed my own brand, and a lot of the work that I was getting by the time I left the agency was directly through me. But that took about we were together for six years, and over that six years, she was like we're still really good friends and. I just admire her so much. But anyways, that's kind of the gap yeah. a little bit there when yeah. in Portland when we moved here. So yeah, like as my, yeah. as my agent, but anyway, I, that's kind of how I got into it. Like by the suggestion of a friend who was like, you know, you're not going to make a living as an artist, just showing your work in like little shops. And like, I think people can do that now, but at the time, you know, it wasn't as possible. Like being a commercial illustrator was, was really the the ticket to making a living as an artist and and I well, was really thank you, Lorena. Thank you, Lorena. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's change topics here. Lisa, I'd love to hear your thoughts on creating quote for you versus quote for your audience. Where on that spectrum do you thrive? <sighs> Gosh. You know, I think that's a great question. And I feel like it's very muddled for me because I have been doing this for so long, like making work, that I think I sometimes don't even think I want to make this thing because my audience will love it. Like I already love making what my audience loves seeing that said, sometimes I do also think like, I want to make this thing, but I don't really think it's very Instagram friendly, which is, you know, important because that's where my audience shows up. Right. Or I'm not sure people would buy it. And that's where 
I think there is an internal struggle sometimes. Like, is it worth it for me to make the thing, especially if it's going to be time consuming that, you know, even though it might be fulfilling for me, might not resonate for anyone else? And the answer to that question is, of course it is. But I, if any of you struggle with that question, I hear you and I feel you because I go through that. So I get a ton of satisfaction and a ton of like, fulfillment for making stuff that I know people are going to love. Like when I have an idea that I love, and I also know in my heart that other people are going to love it, or I can, I predict that they will. There's nothing better than that. Like to me, that's my sweet spot. But you know, there are times when I'm making stuff or I'm drawing stuff, or I have an idea for something I want to make that feels like very personal or very like different than what I normally post. And I really, really try to lean into those moments and make that stuff because even though I might never share it just because I think people would be bored by it, like for me, it feels cool or exciting or like a stretch creatively. So, I mean, I really like doing both and I try to lean into both, both ways of working. Yeah. That's it. That's my, that's my answer. (laughs) That's your answer. Just got a couple more here, and these are focused on the tools that you use. So this person wants to know if your illustrations are really done with just Adobe Photoshop, or how how do you even create your own custom typeface? Those are two questions. So let's talk about Photoshop. Okay. I don't actually create my illustrations in Photoshop. So I edit things in Photoshop quite often, sometimes never at all. So I work probably about 90% of my work is on the iPad in a program called Procreate. This year, I want to experiment with some of Adobe's digital drawing programs as well. There's Fresco and like all kinds of fun things. And actually, Photoshop has, you can draw in Photoshop Mm -hmm. on your iPad now. And I've been so busy this year that I've basically only used Procreate because it's like what I know. And when you're busy, you just got it. There's no time for a learning curve, right? So, so I use Procreate. I, I started using Procreate in 2017 or 18 when I had a really bad injury from editing things on my laptop using the trackpad. Mm -hmm. Like I got carpal tunnel in my wrist and tennis elbow in my elbow and was basically because I wasn't, you know, using a pencil is way more ergonomic, not entirely ergonomic, but way more ergonomic than what I was doing. Yeah. Like I would paint something or draw something using actual like analog materials, like gouache or ink or whatever. I would scan them in my scanner, I have a large flatbed scanner, and then I would edit them in Photoshop. So I I previously did a lot of work in Photoshop as a sort of second or third step. Then I got this iPad, all my my ergonomic problems went away. Occasionally, after I draw something in Procreate, I trace it in vector. A lot of my work has to be vector, and I have learned vector. I don't draw in vector, and I never will, but I have learned how to edit in vector Mm -hmm. in the last year. Partly my employee, Amy, is really good at it. And she taught me some things and I've just figured out the rest. Yeah. I'm very, I taught myself Procreate too. Like I, I don't have time or patience for classes. I just like to dive in and figure things out myself. And so, so I edit sometimes in Illustrator and make things, you know, vectorable and then, or vectorized. <laughs> and then sometimes in Photoshop, I go in and make adjustments that are easier to make in Photoshop than in Procreate. Although now Procreate is like so much more advanced. You can do almost anything in it. Anyway, 
so that's kind of my basic process. And then the second part of the question was about how do you create your custom typeface? Oh, oh. so I just draw it. <laughs> it's not a typeface. I mean, it's it's not a font. It's it's my hand lettering. And I've made a recognizable style. No one else can use it because it hasn't been made into a font. And I, w- I won't do that because it's like my own intellectual property that I use for my work because it's so recognizable. I do have an alphabet that I drew that I sometimes send to clients if they want to add type to something I've done for them. They can use it. And when I work on books where I have to like, like the elements book has like a lot of this, you know, it's a lot of hand lettering. And so I use my alphabet to create a lot of the words and the headers in that book. But for the most part, I just draw it myself to fit in illustrations. And then just in the last two months, I have developed a new lettering style that I'm really loving. And that's going to start showing up in my work more often. So it's all hand drawn, all pretty like, you know, 90% of it is not from the alphabet that I created that you can cut and paste. It's actually just original lettering that I draw on the iPad. And then what was it like to make the leap from analog to digital? Like, let's talk about going back there. Well, I advice for people that are finding that to be a struggle. (laughs) I was super anti and Clay can attest to this. So back in the day when we lived in Oakland, I remember because the woman showed up at the house to like bring me an iPad that had Adobe draw on it or something. I can't even remember Adobe sketch. I can't even remember the name of the program that Adobe was experimenting with at the time. This was a long time ago. And she shows up at the iPad and she's like, I agreed to be like a beta, like a tester of That's right. of it. Yeah. And I was like, it did not feel intuitive to me at all. And like, I couldn't figure out how to use the pencils. And this is no criticism of Adobe. This is me. Like, I think I just wasn't that interested. Like once it showed up at my house, I was like, I don't, do I really like doing this? I actually prefer to use, you know, wet media. And so I was like super lazy. I didn't do a very good job of like testing it out. And I think also, you know, the program was in its infancy and they hadn't quite figured out like pencil pressure. And like, I couldn't get what I was drawing to look like an actual painting or drawing. And, and even though what I do now sometimes looks digital and doesn't necessarily look like a painting or drawing, like it matters less to me now because I do feel like I somehow with Procreate figured out all of those nuances that make my work look like my work. Like I use certain brushes for texture and I use certain color palette and I layer things in a certain way. And so in the beginning, I was just making really rudimentary, simple drawings, just trying to figure out how the darn program worked. And then you kind of see over time this growth from kind of sloppy and flat work to like really I had I used it to illustrate a few books and that kind of like pulled me out of my comfort zone but then ended up helping me get really good at it because when you illustrate a book you have to do a lot of illustrations and so most of my books now are are digitally illustrated been huge benefits for you yeah oh and I don't have any ergonomic problems anymore it saves me time because I don't have to scan things and manipulate them in photoshop mm-hmm. I absolutely love digital drawing. I highly recommend it, even if you're not interested in having it be like your final work. Like even when I make paintings that are made with actual gouache or acrylic paint for, you know, fine art shows and things, I always draw them first in Procreate. 
I plan out what I'm going to paint in advance and it has like streamlined my process so much. I don't always do that. Sometimes I paint from my head, but it has really streamlined my process. And I, so even if you're going to use it just to sketch or like ideate, it's wonderful. Now I do miss having a sketchbook and using wet media. So I'm really interested in diving back into some mediums that like this past year I haven't used very much because I've been so busy doing client work like ceramics and uh, painting and things like that. But love digital drawing, been like a game changer, life changer, career changer for me. Maybe you'll take a sketchbook to Mexico City. Oh, definitely. Sketchbooks are essential for travel. We've got just one last last question. question. So any practical advice on organizing your art space? This place is a mess. (laughs) Somebody obviously needs some help cleaning up their their space. Yeah, well, you know, Clay hears me talk about this all of the time. Like, I, I feel like I'm in a constant battle with my space because I'm one of those people who likes things to be arranged and look nice and not necessarily like super tidy, but like I'm a very visual person. So I, I like it when things look organized and have a place, but I also get into creative mode where things just explode or I'm really busy. And so like mail piles up on my, on my studio table and, you know, there's dog toys all over the floor and I haven't swept in like three weeks and there's dust bunnies everywhere. And so, well, the first thing I do is I've been thinking a lot lately and I actually just rearranged my studio recently and I'm really, really liking it. I think a lot about like what is in my space that I don't use or is unnecessary because I think we often as creative people collect crap that we don't use and don't need because we think we're going to use it. And that's okay. Like to, to, to buy something that you never end up using, give it a good home, like use Facebook marketplace, you know, put it in your buy nothing group, give it to a friend sell it, you know, whatever. You don't need to use that art supply just because you bought it three years ago. Have a studio sale. Like have a studio sale, like get rid of it. Exactly. So I've been doing that lately. Like what supplies are here that I know I'm never going to use again? Because creating space like creates more room for you to organize the stuff that you do use. So I've been doing a bit of that. I also like in my studio is pretty organized, but the and on the other side of the wall, we have our fulfillment center. And it's just like, it's a hot mess. It is like place taking her head. It's a hot mess. And Amy and Erica and I, and, you know, we're the three people who like are in there the most. And like, we moved into the fulfillment space from my garage like a year ago. And at the time it seemed so huge. And like, we were going to have so, and my business has grown so much in the last year. And so we've been like, like four times, like it's so janky because like every time we get a new product, Amy's like, oh, I guess we need a new shelf. Right. And then that shelf doesn't match the other one. And we don't know where to put it because there's like crap everywhere. And so I am, my friend Rebecca recommended like both an organizer and uh, like an interior designer that I could work with potentially to help organize that space and maybe even potentially parts of my own art studio. And I have yet to call them because I think I'm overwhelmed by the overwhelm, if that makes sense. So yeah, just merchandise storage and we have a really thriving online shop. And so you have to have stuff on hand if you're going to ship it. Right. I'm a person who's always been opposed to drop shipping because I like to have my hands or my employees hands touch everything that goes out to make sure it's packaged nicely and branded and all of that good stuff. And so, yeah, so we'll, we'll see how that goes. I'll, I'll report back, but like, I think 
if you can afford it or if you have a friend who's willing to donate their time, like hiring somebody to help you either organize or give you an outside perspective. Because I think sometimes when you're in your studio space or your packing and shipping area, you only see it through your own eyes and your own vision is very limited. It's only Mm -hmm. limited to your own experience or your own way of being able to visualize Mm -hmm. how different it could be. And getting outside opinions on organization is often super helpful. And so I personally also take about once every week or two weeks, I stop everything I'm doing and I spend an hour cleaning and organizing. (laughs) Sometimes it only happens before photo shoots. I I happen happen to have a lot of photo shoots in my studio (laughs) for different projects. Photo shoot to get you to organize. I know. Or purge, right? Because you don't want to like crap laying around. So. Anyway, so cleaning, getting an outside perspective, getting rid of stuff, and then like figuring out like making stuff accessible that you need to use and making space, you know, which I know is really hard because a lot of people listening work at home and, you know, they don't have much space. Well, it's all about the bins and going to Ikea and getting those little plastic tubs. That's right. (laughs) Labeling things. Labels. My friend Diana Fate, if you ever have the chance to like look at her Instagram feed and I'll link to it in the show notes. She's a ceramics artist and she has literally the most beautifully organized studio of anyone I've ever seen. And she takes advantage of pegboard and, you know, scroll through her feed and look at pictures of her studio or her, she's been in a few studios over the last few years, but she's like, she's kind of my like organizational goddess in terms of (laughs) maximizing a small space for utility. And also she only has stuff she uses. Like she's very much a minimalist and that's also really inspiring to me. Like she knows what tools she needs and she organizes them and displays them beautifully. So walking into her studio is a real treat. So I aspire to that. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Clay. This was really fun. I hope everyone enjoyed it. We do have more questions. So we will be recording episode three at some time in the future. So stay tuned for that. And yeah. Clay, thank you so much for You're welcome. It for was super fun. Joining us again. And happy um, holidays, everyone. Yeah, happy holiday. No, this isn't is this coming out? Oh, it's coming out the day before Yeah. yeah it's coming out this week. So yeah, happy holidays. <laughs> <laughs> or if you don't listen to this till after the holidays, I hope you had a great holiday and an even better twenty twenty two. Yeah, Yeah. thanks all for the great questions, and I can't wait to come back. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Editing of this podcast by the amazing Gabe Garber. Thanks to Nick Lambert for the original music and to my amazing team at the CoLoop Podcast Network. Please subscribe to the Lisa Congdon Sessions on Apple Podcasts, and if you enjoy what you hear, leave me a review. You can follow me on social media at Lisa Congdon and at the Lisa Congdon Sessions. I hope you'll join me for future episodes. Have a magical day, everyone.